0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, challenge the status quo. It's, it's never is- easy to yeah.
1: challenge the accepted leaders
0: No,
1: I honestly feel like the biggest issue that we face as counselors is people not understanding the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test. I think that is fundamentally the biggest misconception that we face. Clinicians understand. I think clinicians know, but there is a disconnect with what patients understand about the test.
0: Prenatal genetic testing and counseling is something that is done early on in pregnancy, but there's also carrier screening as well as diagnostic tests. So I interview Jennifer Saucier of Natera, and we dive into the different types of testing so that you can have the most informed decisions about the health of your baby. And we really get into some interesting topics around how testing has evolved over the years, insurance coverage, and the future of testing. So let's listen to Jennifer, and she starts out by talking about her incredible, well-rounded background in working with diverse populations.
1: It's really an honor to be able to kind of um, talk with you and, and kind of talk a little bit about genetic counseling. Um, So like you mentioned, I am a board-certified genetic counselor. I've been a genetic counselor for close to 20 years um, at this point. Um, I live in Texas, so I've always lived and practiced in Texas. Um, I currently serve as the the senior director of clinical genetic services at Natera, who is a genetic testing laboratory, um, and I've worked there for the past 12 plus years. Um, I lead a team of genetic counselors and genetic counseling assistants whose main job is to speak to patients who are considering prenatal genetic testing or the other types of genetic testing that Natera offers, and we also speak to healthcare providers um, about that testing as well. Um, prior to joining Natera, um, like I said, I've always kind of lived and practiced in Texas. I worked in the Austin, Texas area at several maternal fetal medicine doctor's offices, and I met with patients who were considering prenatal genetic testing. And previous to that, I worked at a small rural hospital. Um, I was the sole genetic counselor there, and I kind of did a bunch of uh, all the things genetic, um, pediatric, prenatal, hereditary cancer, um, all of those kind of findings. So I've worked with patients for many years um, who are thinking about genetic testing and watching them kind of work through that
0: process. So let's first define prenatal genetic testing. And what would be helpful here is to understand what it is and why it's important. And maybe if you can overlay in there some misperceptions because, like, for me, the way I think of it is the needle goes in the belly, I have a risk of losing my baby. Like, that's the simplicity of which I, as someone who have not researched it in great detail, think of it. Um, so, let's, you know, help educate us on what it truly is, how it works, um, and how it is different from or similar to that needle that goes in our belly that we're all afraid to do.
1: Yes, and that and that test still exists. So we'll talk a little bit about that test because it still is definitely something that is offered um, to pregnant women. But the good news are it, is that there are new kind of screening tests that are available um, to expectant parents. Um, and so those screening tests are designed to um, tell someone whether there's a high or a low risk of specific genetic conditions in the baby. So um, the difference between a screening test and diagnostic test is that is that kind of difference. A screening test can't tell you for sure whether a baby has a specific genetic condition. It can tell you if you're at high or low risk, and then you get offered a diagnostic test to provide that confirmatory information regarding whether the baby actually does have that condition or not. So that test you described where they do take a little amniotic fluid out from around the baby is a diagnostic test, but it is invasive. It does require a needle going in um, and taking out that little bit of fluid. So there is a small risk of miscarriage. So many women, uh, our pregnant people in general, who are thinking about doing genetic testing in pregnancy may not want to go straight to that diagnostic test They say, hey, let me do a test first to see whether I'm at high or low risk and whether I need to consider that testing or not. And so that's where these prenatal screening tests can help people decide um, what additional testing they want to have in pregnancy and how much information they want to have in
0: pregnancy. Okay. Thank you so much. So what are the types of things that are tested for and and who really needs to get testing done?
1: Yeah. So the prenatal um, genetic tests that are out there these days are available to anyone who's pregnant. Um, So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has recommended that non-invasive prenatal chromosome screening be offered to all women at all ages. Um, Back when I started practicing, you know, 20 years ago, um, it was mainly women who were a little bit older right, who are a little bit older, who are a little bit higher risk for certain chromosome issues in um, babies um, were offered specific testing. But now they've shown that it's it's worthwhile to offer these screening tests to women at all ages. So Anyone who's pregnant um, will typically be offered these tests, and what they're designed to do is, again, determine if there's a high or a low risk of specific chromosome conditions. So, chromosome conditions that are included on these tests um, include things like Down syndrome, which is an extra copy of chromosome 21. Um, it all That's also known as trisomy 21, um, trisomy 18, which is an extra copy of chromosome 18, and trisomy 13, which is an extra copy of chromosome 13, or two additional chromosome conditions that are included on these tests. Again, these types of issues in babies happen sporadically. It's not something that's inherited from mom or dad. Um, It happens more often as women get older, but it can happen to women at all ages, hence why these these screening tests are offered to all women, regardless of their age. And so again, your healthcare provider may offer these tests to you early in pregnancy. They can be done as early as 9 to 10 weeks in pregnancy. And again, the idea is, hey, let's screen you. Let's take a blood sample from you, see whether there's a high or low risk. If you come back high risk, then we will discuss those diagnostic invasive tests as a way to confirm whether or not the baby actually has one of these conditions.
0: Just to clarify, can't some of these tests be done before, like during the family planning stages, before you are pregnant?
1: There are tests that can be done. So the ones that um, what we refer to as carrier screening um, can be performed some, before someone even gets pregnant. So that's a little bit different than the chromosome conditions that I, that I spoke about. That again happens sporadically. Um, uh, carrier conditions are things that. Um, You know, you may have a change in a certain gene that doesn't cause you any problems, because if we remember back to ninth grade biology class, um, we all have two copies of every gene um, in our body, right? We inherit one from our biological mom, one from our biological dad. Um, And in most cases, when you have a, a mutation or a change in one of those genes, you yourself are healthy because you have the other copy right? Kind of compensates for the one that doesn't work. Um, But if you inherit a non-working copy of both genes, that's what can give you some of these genetic conditions. Cystic fibrosis is an example of a condition like this, which is a lung disease that most people I think have heard of. Um, And so what carrier screening can do before you're even pregnant is it can look to see, hey, what are you a carrier for, right? All of us are probably carriers for three to four different genetic conditions. We have no idea, right? Because we're healthy, we don't have any symptoms from it. But if we happen to have a child with someone who is a carrier for the exact same thing that we're a carrier for, then there could be up to a 25% chance that you could have a child who has that condition. And so the way carrier screening works is like, Hey, let's find out what you're a carrier for. Let's find out what your reproductive partner is a carrier for. And that way you have a better idea before you get pregnant of, of what your risks are um, going into the pregnancy. So absolutely. There are genetic tests that are out there that, that can be done before someone. Okay. Gets pregnant. So
0: then I guess just to clarify if you're in family planning stages, it's carrier screening. And then when you are pregnant, there is prenatal genetic screening that is testing for the baby risk. Correct. And then the diagnostic is giving you the, is it certainty or likelihood that's a that's a great
1: question. Um, it's as certain as we can get in prenatal okay. testing, is the way I'll say it. As a genetic counselor, right, like there's lots of strange things that can happen in genetics. Um, so we'll always say that we're never going to say 100% on anything. Um, what you're getting from that amnio, since we were talking about that test, that amniocentesis, where they go in and take out um, a little bit of fluid from around the baby, what they're doing in that test, it's very interesting. They're actually taking baby skin cells that are floating in that amniotic fluid, and they're growing it on lab and they're looking at the chromosomes Um, and most of the time, the chromosomes that you see in your skin is representative of what you see everywhere in your body. But there are strange things that can happen in genetics where sometimes there may be a little bit of difference in the skin. So you'll see on amnios they'll say it's 99.9%. So that's where that little bit of, where I give that little genetic counseling pause. So 99.9%, we're going to be sure if you have one of those diagnostic tests that the result that we're seeing is accurate.
0: So here's a question for you. Would you say there is an equal one-for-one with the things that are discovered in the prenatal genetic testing and having a diagnostic for that? Is there a one-for-one or is there still a gap? Because I'm seeing so much of a gap in diagnostic testing
1: yeah, that's a really, really great question. So the prenatal screening is designed to be extremely specific in what, what conditions okay. that we're trying to screen for, right? So like I mentioned, we're screening for trisomy 21, we're screening for 18, we're screening for 13. Um, we're screening for um, certain sex chromosome abnormalities, right? Looking for at those X's and those Y's to see how many are there. So again, it's very specific um, that the tests are designed to screen for those things. When you're talking about diagnostic testing, it's a broader test. Um, And so, like I said, when we're talking about the amnio, you get those skin cells, you grow them in the lab, you're opening up, you're looking at those chromosome pictures. Again, if we refer back to ninth grade biology class, I think people m- may remember seeing the chromosomes all lined up. That's the type of picture that you get from an amniocentesis, as you see those chromosomes all lined up. So for when we're talking about chromosome screening, diagnostic testing is absolutely going to pick up those chromosome abnormalities that we're screening for as part of an, of an NIPT test, right? As part of this non-invasive of prenatal screening that's occurring. Um, but there can be some changes. Like I mentioned something like cystic fibrosis, like carrier screening that we mentioned that you could do before you're pregnant. If you were just to have an amnio, they would not know, they would not be able to tell you on a chromosome analysis if the baby has cystic fibrosis. So again, because they're just looking at the chromosome pictures, they're not actually looking at the individual genes that make up those chromosomes. But if you know that you're a carrier for cystic fibrosis, and I know that your partner is a carrier for cystic fibrosis, and we know the exact changes that you carry, we can tell the lab that's running the analysis on the amniocentesis to do an additional test on that fluid, on those skin cells, and they can then look for cystic fibrosis. So to your question of, is there a discrepancy? Yes, in the sense that oftentimes on the diagnostic testing, when we're talking about specific genetic changes, you need to know ahead of time what you're looking for. So the data may be in there, but unless you know to go look for it, it won't be picked up on a routine amnio.
0: One of the things that I'm fascinated by, because I'm also um, a consultant in the healthcare industry, and I'm, I'm very passionate about process because it's one thing to have the theory of all these things that one needs to do. But then there is the execution of it, which is where a lot of the breakdown happens. So given you work so closely with these patients and have worked across all demographics, tell us the reality of the types of things that you're seeing and potential challenges that one may face when they are family planning and or pregnant.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a huge, it's a huge challenge for healthcare providers as well as for patients who are finding themselves pregnant many times for the first time. Um, So it's a new process. So I'll say that during the pregnancy journey, that first OB appointment that expectant parents have can be incredibly overwhelming. Um, If it's your first pregnancy, you're sitting down there, you're getting a lot of information. There's a lot of obviously um, excitement and feelings for most people, right, going into that first appointment, um, and the, you know, the physician or the healthcare provider that you're meeting with on that first appointment is going to be giving a lot of information in a very short amount of time. Um, and so, what can happen, I find, is that people are not hearing everything that gets told to them in that appointment, which is understandable. Um, I myself have been pregnant. It it is an overwhelming process. And even someone going into it, knowing something about genetic testing, um, just hearing that mention, it just gets thrown in um, with the rest of the information that's being shared. And so oftentimes there simply isn't enough time, I think, to give um, the proper amount of information that most most people really need to make an informed decision when it comes to these things. So I think that's one of the challenges during the pregnancy. I think even before you get pregnant in the family planning thing, um, it can be difficult to even get access sometimes to carrier screening. A lot of times people don't think about genetic disorders that are going to affect a baby until they're actually pregnant. And that includes healthcare providers, right? When you go in for your well woman exam or your regular checkup, they're thinking about where you are right now. Um, They may not be talking about some of that additional kind of family planning stuff in regards to genetic conditions. And so what I find as a genetic counselor is many people never even hear about any type of genetic testing until they are actually pregnant. Um, As a counselor, I would love for more people to be here about carrier screening before the pregnancy, but the truth is typically it it doesn't get offered um, until they're actually pregnant. Um, So again, then it's one more test, right, that gets thrown into that first appointment that can be extremely overwhelming for people. So I think a lot of it is just the time um, that healthcare providers have to explain all of that really important information early in pregnancy. And my advice to patients is is to ask, um, is there more information I can take with me? Um, Recognizing that, you know, you know, again, I think all doctors are, you know, and in, in, in doctor's offices are, are seeing a lot of patients, right, in a very small amount of time, and they have to get through a lot of patients in a day. So as a, as a patient being an advocate for yourself saying, hey, is there some information I can take with me? Can I, can you point me to some places where I can learn some more about the information that you've shared with me? And even asking if you specifically want more information about genetic testing, hey, is there someone I can meet with? Can I talk with a genetic counselor locally? Um, genetic counselors are trained to walk patients through the genetic testing process, whether that's pre-test, mid-test, post-test. Um, they have that training in medical genetics and counseling to help patients go through that journey. Um, I think I recognize there's not enough genetic counselors probably in the United States or worldwide to meet with everyone who's pregnant. Um, and you know, the lab that I I personally work for, Natera, um, we have we provide access to genetic counselors for patients who have questions at no cost um, to patients, so they can always call Natera directly, set up a time to speak to a genetic counselor over the phone, who can go walk through, hey, what is this test? What is it looking for? What is it not looking for? Right? Like go through all of that information with patients beforehand. So there are resources out there. It's really can we get Can we get that to patients so they know where to go um, when they have questions?
0: I guess I'm trying to figure out how to um, ask this question. So wait, are you saying that there are cases where a genetic test is offered and there isn't counseling? It's just a report that gets handed to the OBGYN?
1: There are, I, I am aware, I, I. when I was in practice, um, you, know, you know, 15 years ago, meeting with couples who were pregnant, I cannot tell you as many times as people would walk into my office and had no idea that they had had, at that time, which was a hormone test that most people were having as a screening test for chromosome issues, they had no idea it had even been ordered. Um, now, whether, it, it's hard to know in those situations what had happened. I, I have no doubt someone in that office told the patient that they were being drawn, Um. But they're not, I think it's being put in the context of a lot of additional information um, that can be hard to tease through. Um, I think today it's probably a little bit better than it was when when I was meeting with patients in person um, 15 years ago. But again, it's not surprising even for us these days sometimes to hear like, hey, I didn't didn't really understand what I was being tested for. Um, The nurse told me I was going to have my blood drawn um, and I was going to have this test, but I didn't really understand what it was going to be looking for. Or I didn't understand that it was a screening test. I think that's one of the challenges that we have as well, that people don't understand how screening tests work, that it's not telling you anything for sure is necessarily wrong with the baby, and that it's designed to find who needs additional testing. Um, And so, unfortunately, a lot of patients, um, you know, think that there's definitely something wrong with with their baby when they receive those high-risk screening results. And so, that's why counseling is extremely important at that point, so they understand we don't want anybody making irreversible decisions based on a screening test. Um, it's, It's definitely not what those tests are designed to do. So, yes, there are are, there are situations where I feel like people don't necessarily understand the tests that are, that are, that they're having drawn.
0: And, but even when the tests are drawn, is the system set up where not everyone automatically gets genetic counseling? It's more of a, you show up at your doctor's office for your follow-up visit and they just like read through your lab results and that's it. Is that also quite common? I think with
1: carrier screening, probably it's more Mm -hmm. common to see something like that, right? I think if you were to get a high-risk result on on an NIPT test that's looking for a chromosome issue, I I think that most doctor's offices handle that in a little different way. And and in most cases, um, they're going to refer out at least to a maternal fetal medicine doctor because they want to discuss diagnostic testing. So I would say that's the process that happens in most cases when we're talking about NIPT or that non-invasive prenatal screening um, is that they'll be referred to a maternal fetal medicine doctor. And a lot of maternal fetal medicine doctors work very closely with genetic counselors. So you'll usually in that situation, meet with a genetic counselor, as well as with a maternal fetal medicine doctor to talk about your options. Um, Like I said, at Natera, we obviously have counselors available who are available, you know, to meet with sometimes people immediately um, and kind of bridge that gap because, you know, all doctors, like I said, they're busy. They're seeing a lot of patients these days. Unfortunately, sometimes patients have to wait a couple weeks to get in to see a maternal fetal medicine doctor when they end up with one of these high-risk results. And so we're happy to kind of help bridge that gap and, and give people access Access to genetic counselors um, quickly. So if they have questions about their screening result, if it's done through us, we can speak to them about, hey, this is what this test means, this is what it doesn't mean, this is what you need to be thinking about, next steps. So I think that the system itself from my view at this point, handles high risk NIPT and non-invasive prenatal screening tests pretty well. There's a process in place. Um, carrier screening, I think sometimes I've heard the scenario that you describe. Um, you'll sit down and they'll just go, we did your carrier screening and you're a carrier for CF, you know, so it's a little bit more done casually. And um, sometimes people can be a bit taken aback. Like they may be weren't quite sure what they were being tested for, um, and are a little bit surprised, um, when they find out something like that.
0: So where are we today with this proactive testing?
1: it's a great question and a lot better. I think it's, it's gradually getting better. I think we are seeing payers recognize to your point that it does make sense. Um, oftentimes to, to pay for the screening upfront, um, um, as a preventative measure. Um, I think the other thing that's helping is that technology is making these tests easier to run. So, you know, many, many years ago to sequence a gene, it, it was ridiculously expensive. I mean, to, to refer to another type of testing, hereditary cancer testing when it first came out. Um, it was literally BRCA1 and 2, which which some people may be familiar with that gene, um, and the testing was three to four thousand dollars just for a gene, right? Two genes it, that has come down tremendously, and again, I think it's been powered by the fact that now we have more powerful technology that allows us to screen for more genes. It's less cumbersome on the lab. Um, and so you're seeing the price come down because of new equipment, new technology, that sort of piece. So just just that piece alone, I think is helping a lot, bring the pricing down. Carrier screening um, uh, panels keep getting larger. Um, so and, and that is also um, uh, related to the fact that we're able to screen more genes at once. So I, I don't know what, what kind of size panel you were offered, but they were probably 100 genes a couple of years ago. Now we're looking at close to 400. 500 genes. Um, Many labs are offering carrier screening for for panels of that size, and typically you don't see a a giant price difference, Um, honestly. It's kind of coming down to patient and clinician preference in regards to how many conditions somebody wants to be screened for up front, and you're not seeing giant kind of price differences. Typically, most people out of pocket because typically it will be covered, pay very little out of pocket, um, but if they are seeing a bill, sometimes it's maybe at most $100 um, that's kind of out of pocket, excluding people who have high deductible plans. I know we don't want to sidetrack into all the ways insurance works, but um, for most people, the out of pockets have come down pretty dramatically when we're talking about carrier screening. Um, and the same for NIPT, the non-invasive prenatal screening as well. Um, you know, that ACOG, that American College of Ob- Obstetricians and Gynecology has recommended an IPT for all. And so what you've seen is payers respond to that because there is recommendation for it to be offered. And so the majority of commercial payers are paying for it. Um, you know, we're seeing, pay, you know, coverage in, in Medicaid as well. Um, so the majority of patients pay very little. Um, and labs like Natera, um, we have a compassionate care program as well. So depending on someone's income, they may pay as little as zero um, if they qualify for compassionate care. Um, We believe pretty strongly that people should have access to this type of information as part of their pregnancy or their pre-pregnancy planning. And so we have programs in place to help people.
0: Are there nuances that we need to talk about at all as far as, um, like I could see things like maybe them not knowing that they could apply for compassionate care or being intimidated to do it. There's so many different aspects. So what do we need to know there? Because there are healthcare providers that listen to this podcast and you know any role they can play or others um, i think it would be important to share
1: yeah, I think one program that we've rolled out to help um, inform patients and educate them regarding the, price, the pricing issues is just something we call price transparency. So it allows patients to have, if you have insurance, for us to kind of take a look very quickly um, when we get a sample and say, okay, this is what we think your insurance is going to do, right? And and have that discussion like, hey, maybe you're on a high deductible plan and it looks like your out of pocket cost maybe higher than our cash pay price. Like, what do you want to do here, right? Do you want to take a cash? pay option or do you want us to go ahead and process through your insurance and and see how that that plays out? But this is what we think, right, Um, based on what we've seen previous, right, Um, people with this type of insurance, what's going to happen. So we're trying very hard early in that process to reach out to patients where we've received a sample and say, hey. Hey, we we went ahead and did this analysis for you. What do you want to do? And give you the opportunity to do so. Now, obviously, there's legal issues, right? Once it's a certain once once we've had insurance submitted and someone doesn't opt for cash, then we legally have to go through insurance, and then we're obligated to follow that. But we do want to give people that information as early in the process as possible, so they can make that informed decision regarding do I want to go through my insurance, knowing what what that looks like, or do I want to take a cash pay price? Got it. So trying to do that, but I think a lot of it to your point is, can, can people be educated early in the process? Because that's, you know, what we're trying to do, but sometimes patients don't know um, that that, that those programs exist.
0: Now, is there anything, because, you know, a lot of, again, this all seems incredibly logical, but you're working with the patients and clinicians. What's missing? Like, are there things that I may not even know to ask you about because it's something I wouldn't even fathom is is actually happening. So either misinformation, misunderstanding, gaps, like what are some of the things that we may not know by just going on Google?
1: Yeah, no, I honestly feel like the biggest issue that we face as counselors is people not understanding the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test um, in pregnancy. I think that is fundamentally the biggest misconception that we face um, with, in talking to both, uh, clinicians understand, I think clinicians know, but there is a disconnect um, with what patients understand about the test. Um, specifically with with um, non-invasive prenatal screening, um, we, we hear a lot of people who go, well, I, I just wanted to get the test because I really wanted to know the biological sex of the baby. Um, and so it, it, as a counselor, what I want people to understand is that is not the purpose of the test. The purpose of the test is to look for certain chromosome conditions, um, And to see whether you need additional testing, right? And so as a counselor, I feel like sometimes that piece is being missed. um, And they're hearing one thing, right? They've keyed in on on one piece of it and missing the fact that the point of this test is to really like help people prepare and manage their pregnancy and manage the birth of a baby that may have special medical needs. Um, And so I think that that's the piece that I see is missing. And again, where screening plays a part in that versus the diagnostic test and the amnio. And one thing that I think it's important for people to think about early in pregnancy when they're thinking about these screening tests is asking themselves, am I prepared to do a diagnostic test? Like when you're hearing about a non-invasive test, it sounds really great. You know, it sounds great. It's just a blood sample. And it is, it is just a blood sample from the pregnant patient. And we can give, you know, a lot of screening information, but it's never a definitive answer. And so you have to really think about, what type of person am I? What type of information do I want in my pregnancy? And so I feel like that's part of the conversation that may not be happening early and those people aren't having time to reflect on what do I want in pregnancy? What information is helpful to me? And am I prepared to do additional testing if necessary? And so starting to think about those things early in pregnancy, um, like I said, I understand having met with with patients and been a, a pregnant patient myself, a lot going on early in pregnancy, but I think this is an important piece that isn't often happening. Um, and I know counselors want to talk to people about these things. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that if you ever get the chance to, to reach out to a genetic counselor, do so. They are there to help. That's why why they're there. Um, I There is, a, I think, a misconception too, that somehow the counseling part of this is scary. Um, it's really just about making informed decisions, and that's what counselors are there for. Um, but yeah, I would say that that my experience is that appears to be the disconnect is not really understanding the tests that are being offered and run and what the process looks like during pregnancy. Like what are the next steps that are going to come from there? Cause I've, I've had patients when I was meeting with them personally, who would be like, I didn't want this information. It's not everyone, because I personally feel that there's a lot of benefit to obviously being able to prepare and have this information in pregnancy, but I recognize that that is not right for every person. And so I feel like in an ideal world, people would be asked those questions early in pregnancy. This is the test. Walk somebody through that process and really think about what information you want in pregnancy and am I re- and I'm ready to take this testing journey or not.
0: Got it. So since you brought that up, this is uh, admittedly a very sensitive question. Especially given the time. So, I hope I say this right. So, if you have the information, are there conditions where, like, for example, um, I knew a woman who knew while she was pregnant that her daughter was going to be born and need multiple heart surgeries? Like, I can't even imagine. Um, and I'm not sure if that was identified through blood testing. I assume not. I assume it was through. Um, you know other means but for the things that are being tested for it's always going to be that tough decision of keeping the baby or are there tests and i i hope anyone listening this is not a political i this is not about that but i think it's important for people to know especially since you're bringing up what do i want to know like what are the possible options that a woman can do when she's getting those results
1: in regards to what's being screened yep. for, so some of the things are in, incredibly um, serious. Um, so I mentioned something like trisomy 13. That's an extra copy of chromosome 13. Unfortunately, the lifespan is incredibly reduced um, with babies who have that condition. Um, so that is something that I've seen, you know, you know, pregnant patients struggle with. What do I want to do here, right? Like I'm being told that this this baby will probably not live very long, um, and so that is an excruciating right, decision to have to make during your pregnancy as to to whether you want to continue a pregnancy um, or continue a pregnancy knowing um, that there are not really a lot of treatment options, um, unfortunately, for babies who have, have full trisomy 13. But it can range. Um, so we talk about trisomy 21. And, you know, it is one of the more common chromosome conditions that we see. Um, babies who have trisomy 21, it ranges, right? Um, so dramatically. There are obviously incredibly successful, happy people walking around who have a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And so I think what's important when you find out um, this sort of information during pregnancy and another role that a counselor can help play is hey, let me connect you with some of these support groups, like these parent support groups for individuals with Down syndrome syndrome. syndrome so you can get a better idea of what we're talking about right? Um, So you can understand what the range looks like for an individual with Down syndrome. So you can, again, understand, hey, am I in this preparation mode, right? Am I, am I considering whether I want to continue this pregnancy or not? That way you can think about your options and, and again, collect all the information that you need um, during the pregnancy to make a decision that's right with your, right? Like with your internal compass, like what you feel you want to do. Some of the conditions that we pick up on screening tests may be less severe. Um, There are conditions. Um, there's a micro deletion condition. So that's a piece of a chromosome that's missing. Um, that's called DeGeorge syndrome. It's 22q1.122. Um, um, it's, it's the exact kind of location on the chromosome 22. But there's a little piece of it that's missing. So individuals that have that can have health conditions that need to be addressed, right? They can have palate issues. Some of them can have heart conditions, um, things like that, that can benefit from being diagnosed very early and knowing up front that the child has it. But again, to your point, not something nearly as severe as trisomy 13, right? So it can range from, you know, my child has, you know, a cleft palate and may need surgery, right, to something like trisomy 13, which where the outcome is not not, not as happy um, in, in most situations. So it can range. So it's definitely not a situation where I'd say every person that receives a result from an amnio that finds out that their baby has one of these chromosome conditions is necessarily going that direction or wants to to consider that. Um, But yeah, so it can definitely kind of range. But our goal in in kind of prenatal testing is to give people the information um, that they they want during pregnancy so they can have options in front of them and so they can take steps to prepare um, if they're continuing a pregnancy to give that child the best outcome that we can possibly give that child.
0: Interesting. So as you were talking about um, the awareness piece of of, um, maybe conditions that don't have as severe of an impact on lifespan and daily living, one of the things I was thinking about is addiction. Um, And I know it runs in my family with on the male side severely to the point where I have a son. And when I was pregnant, my um, psychiatrist said, you are going to have a very different conversation with your son about drugs and alcohol. This is not the, hey, be careful, you know, don't drink and drive. This is going to be a, no, your mental illness will be impacted. Um, Have we gotten to a point of understanding that with screening and testing?
1: Yeah, such a good question. Um, So I will say that genetics as a field um, is is making strides towards understanding more complex genetic disorders, such as addiction, other things that we refer to as, you know, polygenic is, is a term that you'll hear in genetics, where we think that there's multiple genes that are playing a role in a susceptibility, right? So unlike something where I mentioned Down syndrome. We know that Down syndrome is caused by an entire extra copy of 21. It's pretty clear cut, right? Like we understand why someone ends up with that condition. When we're talking about more common type diseases, even things like heart disease, any kind of psychiatric issues, things like that, we think that there's a multitude of genes that are playing a role. And so it can be much more difficult, right? To really identify what those genes are. And again, how much, right? Each gene is playing a part in that. But there've been giant, um, you know, Gene studies that are trying to really delineate again what are these genes, what is the impact, what kind of combination do you need that leads to a certain type of risk profile. Um, so there are companies that are out there that are looking at these polygenic risk um, and starting to really tease out like, hey, you know, your risk for schizophrenia, right? Um, and maybe this percent based on these 24 genes right, that we looked at. Um, so we're not quite there yet to be able to offer testing during pregnancy to really kind of give people information like regarding what's going on with their baby. We're not there in genetics yet, but I think I'm seeing a lot of progress just in regards to our ability to identify what are the genes that are playing a role here. Um, and, and there are obviously labs that are going to be looking at whether they can offer those types of tests commercially to
0: patients. Wow. I mean, should we be anticipating that there's gene alteration happening as well with this genetic testing, and and if so, what are people saying about this? Is you know, is there is this debate of should we even go there? Um, I'm thinking even of the gentleman who invented the internet. I mean, he is devastated, and he is now working on undoing it. So, talk to us about that science.
1: Oh, it's 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 a fascinating piece of this, and I and I will say I personally have an interest in an interest in the bioethics aspect of this as well as as most counselors I suspect too. So not yet. Uh, so I, I to reassure people in general, nobody's editing any embryos. Um, so we can we can um, we we can kind of put that part to rest. It's not happening yet, but it is an important question I think that needs to be posed, and I think with genetics in general because it is very cutting edge, right? So there's always this question of should we be doing something just because you can from a technology perspective doesn't mean that you should. Um, and I think that it, it, it's important to be having those conversations now before we actually have the ability um, to really do gene editing um, for the purpose of, of you know embryo selection right um, of changing an embryo's gene, um, germline um, to know up front like is this something we should be doing and if you do do it, for what purpose? right Because I think that's the big question. Is, is where is the line? Um, so currently, and, and you may know this, having some experience in IVF, There is the option. People do have pre-implantation genetic testing performed. That is an option um, for people who are going through IVF. Like I said, we don't have the ability to change an embryo's genetics um, at this point, but there is the ability to screen for certain things um, before an embryo is transferred. So I've mentioned cystic fibrosis a couple of times. So again, if you know that you and your partner are both carriers for cystic fibrosis, a test can be developed that can be run on a sample from an embryo. to know whether or not um, that embryo has inherited um, those cystic fibrosis mutations. And so you can choose to transfer the embryos that are not affected. So again, we can't change the actual germline, but we can choose to transfer embryos that do not have the condition that you're concerned about. So some of these conversations. Are being had just in the context of what's already going on, right? Because we can develop genetic tests for all sorts of stuff, right? Like let's mention the polygenic risk piece, right? Like if we can screen for those things, should you be doing it in an embryo or not? So these are important ethical questions that I think um, need to be kind of addressed. I will say that, you know, working in this field, the professional societies that are out there are having these conversations. So when you go to these educational conferences, these are very much our conversations Conversations that are being held and being had and being addressed at a serious level. But at the same time, there is no necessarily authority that's saying you can or cannot do something at this point. So, yes, it's being discussed. Is enough being done? It's debatable.
0: Wow. And maybe that's a learning with the internet because I can't think of a better example at the moment of maybe the governing bodies are going to be needed. I mean, when you look at what all the changes that are happening in society with technology. I mean, even social media with young kids and just For there's sure. so many different aspects now that we have the technology to aid in science and so many other things, it, it brings about a lot of questions. So fascinating. And how does this work with choosing a company? So mm-hmm. is is the dynamic set up where like there's affiliations with different clinics? Is it a patient says you know, like Coke or Pepsi, you know, when you go to your doctor, I'm not sure if, and I don't even know if the patient would know. So how does it work? Because I'm sure that each company is offering different things? And so...
1: It's a great question. And I think it's something that patients probably are not aware of, right? That that kind of goes on behind the scenes. And in most cases, the healthcare provider is deciding which laboratory it wants to use. Okay. Um, so those are conversations that are being had between the different labs and the, and the doctor's offices to help decide which one they want to offer to patients. Now, that being said, there's always situations where a patient may come in and have an opinion, right? Um, based on... <laughs> on, 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 on however, maybe they know somebody at a certain company or they know something about it because of, of their profession, right? Like peripherally, we'll have people who work in genetics who may have an opinion on certain, certain labs versus other labs. Um, and so they may say, I prefer that my sample go to a different laboratory Most doctors I'm aware of are are willing to accommodate situations like that, but it's definitely not typically a burden that I would say that's put on patients to help decide. I mean, I think it's hard enough. Like we talked about getting informed about what these tests do and what they don't do um, to put on top of of this. Like, you know, there's 12 labs, and you need to pick which test you want um, out of the different 12 labs that offer these tests. So, yeah. So fortunately, like I said, it's not really a a patient-driven decision. Most of the time, it is a healthcare provider decision.
0: Thank you. Wow. Mm -hmm anything that I didn't ask that you want to talk about? And we've had such a great conversation about so many different things related to this topic.
1: Yeah. The only thing I'll just put a, um, a pitch in there for people who maybe are are early in pregnancy and thinking, Hey, I really want to talk to a genetic counselor. Um, I would suggest going to the national society of genetic counselors website, which is NSGC.org. Um, they have a very nice, like find a genetic counselor in your area, um, tool that can help people locate the genetic counselors even by specialty. So if you're pregnant, you can say, hey, I want to meet with someone who specializes in prenatal or reproductive medicine. And so you can help find someone in your area. But I also, as somebody who works in a, in a lab, want to promote that, hey, if you if you do end up having one of these tests, please reach out. I mean, we are here. We are support staff. We are here to help people on this journey. Um, so please please don't be scared to, to reach out to, to a genetic counselor. They're here to help you um, and, and help kind of guide people through this process. And we recognize how confusing um, it can be.
0: So I do have a fun way I like to end these episodes. I like to ask the guests a fun fact about them.
1: Oh, what do I do outside of fun? I would love to say live music. It's been a while since we've been able to do that. My husband and I, we live outside of Houston and we live close to a, um, a, a an outdoor pavilion that we love to go see live music. So I will say we're looking forward to returning to doing some of that. But other than that, I have two teenage girls. So
0: Ooh.
1: I spend a lot of time doing their things.
0: Thank you so much for the work that you are doing in the Terra in supporting those who um, are trying to build their family and just making sure they get the Absolutely. best information possible to make those informed decisions. And thank you also for eloquently answering some of the the tougher um, questions that we have at hand. So it's a great discussion.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.